So we're going to start looking at the ideal soil in relation to biology. When we get to this level, if we've done everything right, we've got all the conditions right, this is the final key to optimum growth and fruitfulness, is getting this biology. I call it the unseen agencies. We don't see them in action, but they're doing all kinds of things that might make life more abundant. But they can't work. They cannot work if they are not given the conditions to, to do their jobs. But once they start doing them, all these things, you know, people will ask me questions about what, kind, what should I do to treat this disease or do with these weeds or why is this happening and everything. I don't spend a lot of time on the, on the effects in the work that I do and the study that I do. I, I spend my time on the causes. Because if you address the causes, most of the effects that you're going to expend tons of resources on will, will go away. And so too many people spend their time on figuring out how to suppress the, inter the, the effects rather than figuring out why are the effects even there and how do I eliminate them. So we're going to look at the, the different aspects of a soil food web. This is just a... And um, listen, like I said before, with the Internet, you have access to information in an unprecedented way. Of course, it's going to how you benefit from that is going to be determined by what you invest your time and your attention in. There's all kinds of things on there that are total distractions and diversions and destructive. But it's unprecedented in history, the access to information that people have. I tell my kids, they, they have all their smart devices now and everything, and, and that it's at the access to their fingertips. And, of course, then patience usually comes with that. You know, if you can't have it, just, you know, a person, a personal text and, if you don't respond to them in, in uh, 15 seconds, they're texting back, did you get my text? You know, it's brought impatience with it as well. But the truth is that it's unprecedented in history, the knowledge that, you, that we have access to individually. It's not, it's not limited by the access to, to books or other parts of the world. Or, or, and, the, and, the, and the information that could come from that. We, you can reach the whole world now and the knowledge that's there. The question is, what knowledge are you pursuing and what understanding do you want to have? So let's just look at the different aspects of this and we'll see what they do for us. Like I had mentioned in one of the other classes, there's all kinds of interventions coming in now. The, the soil's falling apart. It's blowing away. It's washing away. The biology is dead, and so we've got all kinds of man-made interventions to try to compensate for that, that dysfunction and everything. But um, all of that is done, and it's done in a much better way than any intervention that man could come up with to, to um, compensate for it. So the first group, we work, we're going to kind of start from the foundation, back, biological foundation, and work our way on up. First thing we're going to look at is bacteria. Bacteria tend to proliferate in a more alkaline environment. And so if you were to go into, now the, um, the, the soil, the biologists in the biological school of thought, again, come from a premise of evolution, largely. And you need to understand that because a lot of people, because biology is natural, they think, well, this is a reasonable thing to think is the solution. 
But conventional wisdom comes from a, 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 a foundation of evolution. And so they'll say that uh, life is successional. And, but what you'll see is that it's, the succession is one of deterioration, not one of, of evolution or advancement, if you want to put it that way. And so in, in more productive um, ecological systems like grasslands and, and things like that, You'll have a higher out, the pH will be higher, and there'll be more prolif higher proliferation of bacteria. If you were to go into a forest, first you would go into a deciduous forest, and then it would go, it would, it would succeed on, as they would call it, into a uh, a coniferous forest. Um, you you switch to a more acidic environment and a more fungal dominated environment. Well, you don't want either extreme. You want a balance. Again, it comes back to the balance again. And so in a, in a soil that's properly constructed, the pH falls exactly where it balances the function of bacteria and fungi in the soil so that you get the benefit of both of them without the extreme influence of either one. And so there are different types of bacteria. There are the nitrogen fixers. There are basically three kinds of nitrogen fixers. And again, as I've mentioned multiple times, this should be your objective as a grower to get this nitrogen system, this system to work for you. You shouldn't be spending your money on nitrogen. There's the rhizobium bacteria. They're, they're symbiotic. They, uh, they associate with the roots of leguminous plants or trees, and uh, they fix nitrogen in relationship. And it's symbiotic because the plant gives it photosynthates. It gives it energy compounds. And then in exchange, the rhizobium bacteria fixes nitrogen and gives it back to the plant. Azotobacter is a type of free-living. There's more than just azotobacter, but there's the type of free-living bacteria in the soil. And they fix nitrogen independent of any, any symbiotic relationship with plants. Um, do you ever wonder how stuff stays green and nobody puts any nitrogen on? That's because these systems are working. They may not be working at their optimum levels because they're limited by the dysfunction of the soil or poor construction of the soil, but they're functioning. And one of the interesting things about this one, and well, let me tell you the, the other one too. The other one is cyanobacteria. And um, that's blue-green algae. They call it an algae, but it's actually a bacteria. And it also fixes nitrogen. Um, and it, it's cyano, it's because of the, it, it actually produces B12 too. It's blue-green because it's the cobalt that it's, that's in its, in its makeup. It causes it to have the blue, a blue-green color in there. But with all of these, um, and they, there is some ability to fix energy. That's where there's kind of a transition kind of between um, bacteria and what are called algae. Um, but it has some capacity to actually fix energy itself. Photosynthesize is the term. Then there's a group, but there's a whole host of these, and they're, 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 they can be prolific in the soil. So like I said, again, there's no reason why you can't fix your own nitrogen. And nitrogen is the biggest problem because it's the, 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 the nutrient and greatest need in the plant. Um, for the organic grower, your options are either expensive or risky. And for the conventional grower, it's both the same expensive and risky. Risky for different reasons. Risky because they're using highly soluble, highly soluble materials. And expensive 
not only because of the cost of the material, but the cost of producing that material. Tremendous amounts of energy go into producing uh, commercial nitrogens. Energy that could be used in other ways that are more productive. The second group are the nitrifiers. They're aerobic, and they actually are the ones that convert nitrogen into usable forms. Into a, they break it out of the, the um, organic matter and into ammonia, and then from there they break it down to nitrite and then to nitrate. The ammonium and nitrate forms are both what are used by the plant. Um, and so they're essential. If you have organic matter in your soil and you don't have any of these nitrifying bacteria, it's, you're not going to get it. It's just going to be sitting there in the organic matter. If they, they're the ones that have to release it. Well, I take, they do partially, but we'll see on the bottom that these are the primary decomposers. But then there's denitrifiers. They're anaerobic. And this is why it's critical that your soil be constructed correctly, because you don't want these functioning. You don't want these denitrifiers functioning because you don't want your soil anaerobic. Because what they're going to do is they're going to take the nitrogen that was, was released and made available to the plant, and they're going to turn it back into nitrogen gas and volatilize it back into the air, or nitrous oxide, either one. And it'll go back to the air, and then it's, it's no longer available for use for growth. And then the fourth one here is the decomposers. I put actinomycetes here. This is another one of those groups that they're not quite sure how to classify, but it behaves more like bacteria than it does like fungi. Um, they're decomposers, but they also produce antibiotics. Have any of you heard of the antibiotic streptomycin? Erythromycin? Um, um, what are the others I'm trying to think of here? Man didn't make those up, folks. <laughs> These actinomycetes are the ones that produce all those antibiotics. And man discovered that, and then they started synthesizing it. But it's when these actinomycetes are producing these antibiotics that it produces a beneficial, a protective effect to the plant. It keeps in balance the organisms in the soil. You know that earthy smell? you get when you dig soil and, or it's just rained or something like that and you smell that earthy smell? That's Streptomyces actinomycetes producing that smell. You, that's the, it's giving it that smell to the soil. I put a picture up here of the bacteria. This is a, a colored, they gave color to it. These are not the actual colors, but actually some bacteria, their bacteria do have different colors. And I don't recall exactly, I forgot to, to add that in here. You can tell what kind of bacteria is by its color. They are clear bacteria, they are purple bacteria, they are, they are green bacteria. And you can tell what, the, what job they do by their, by their color. And we'll talk about how you get rid of pathogenic behaving bacteria um, a little bit later. I didn't include the pathogens in here. Uh, because most of the pathogens are just some of these misbehaving or an ill behavior. Okay, the next group is fungi. And again, they prefer an acid soil as opposed to a, in order for them to, to dominate, they prefer an acid soil as opposed to the bacteria preferring an alkaline soil. Um, and the different groups of fungi, this, is, this picture here is wheatgrass growing. And it's, you can't see it real well up in there, but you can see all the, the, the threads coming up around those roots. That's all the, the mycorrhizal fungi, the, their um, filaments, their hyphae, 
coming up all around and infecting those roots. And they're not infecting it. You know, when we think of the term infect, we're thinking of disease. They're infecting the, the root of the plant in a symbiotic way, again. In exchange for exudates, for energy compounds, they're going to bring nutrients to the plant. And this is a huge, a huge thing for growers because the mycorrhizal fungi, or this, well, well, there's different types of fungi, but I'm, this is particularly a mycorrhizal fungi here, a VAM fungi, as I have up there. Um, they can expand the, root, the reach of the roots of the plant a hundredfold. They can go into the, into the soil and, and expand the reach. I work with fruit growers. I have a lot of fruit growers that I work with. And they want to just fertilize the tree line. They don't want to fertilize out in between the trees because they they've been told that, well, the, the roots don't go out beyond the tree line. But that's not true. And they don't bother to take into consideration that the fungi go way beyond the tree line. And so they don't want to mow grass, and so they don't want to have to put the fertilizer. They don't want to pay for the fertilizer, and they don't want to have to put it out in the middle and everything. And I say, but putting that, you want that whole area to be healthy. One, because it's going to discourage uh, adverse influences in the environment, but it's also going to expand the access that your, your plant has, your tree has, to nourishment. But there's a, lot of, there's a lot of misinformation and a lot of confusion out there about what reality actually is. Um, by proper soil construction. And I don't know if you've been in all the classes, but when you get the chemistry right, you're going to see this recurring theme. The right character to the soil. I'll put that term on it. The right character to the so of the soil. Proper chemistry produces proper porosity and capillarity. And when you have those conditions, you have proper, the soil can breathe. In other words, there's air exchange. And so anaerobic conditions are just a lack of air, oxygen. And so you can, that can be caused by poor capillarity, you have and porosity where you have water saturating the pore spaces and excluding air, or compaction can do the same thing and exclude the air. It comes back to proper soil construction. Okay, so the, the different types of fungi, saprophytes are, that's just a big word for decomposers. They, they actually decompose um, organic material now, the bacteria, which I didn't say, the bacteria really go after the fresh material, the high nitrogen material. They're going to be breaking down that material. The fungi go after the harder to digest stuff, the, the cellulose and the lignins and the pectins and, and uh, the, the fibrous in the fats, the lipids the, the, that are harder to decompose. The, the fungi are the ones that break those down, whereas the bacteria goes after the simpler, the simpler compounds, the sugars. Um, and the simpler energy compounds. Um, the second group is the mutualists. These are, these are fungi that have a symbiotic relationship, a mutual benefit. There's a mutual relationship between them and the plant and the soil. And you have the VAM fungi. That stands for vesicular, arbuscular, mycorrhizal fungi. You don't need to worry about remembering that until you're to that point. You really want to know that. But just... Almost all plants have a beneficial relationship if they have this relationship with this VAM fungi because it, like I said, it extends the reach of the plant into a much, a much more pervasive um, area of the soil. You have ectomycorrhizal, it's, it's ectomycorrhizal fungi, um, and these are, these are more on uh, trees. It's endo and ecto, 
it doesn't, this, the VAM fungi are endo, they infect the root, they get into the root. Ecto just creates a, a coating, a covering around the root. It doesn't actually go into the, enter into the root. And that's predominantly, you see ecto mycorrhizal fungi predominantly with trees, so particularly conifer, coniferous trees. They have that type of relationship. Ericoid fungi, if you grow blueberries, anybody grow blueberries in the room? Ericoid fungi is the uh, symbiotic fungi that blueberries, that the, um, the ericaceous plants, blueberries, azaleas, rhododendrons. Um, and for those of you who weren't in here and didn't hear it, the best blueberries or azaleas or rhododendrons do not grow on acid soil. You're told that all the time. In fact, they did research with rhododendrons, which supposedly requires an acidic soil to grow, and we can't get into all the reasoning here, but they raised the pH to 8.4, which is incredibly high, but they supplied adequate magnesium. It's a magnesiophile. They all are. Um, and they need to be sure they can get magnesium. And they grew the best-looking rhododendrons you ever saw in your life at a pH of 8.4. They gave them the nourishment that they needed. And so if somebody tells you you have to use an acid soil to grow these things, they tolerate it. But it's not, you're not going to get the best plant, you're not going to get the best fruit. The highest yielding blueberries don't come from acid, and the highest yielding and highest quality blueberries don't come from acid soil production. They come from balanced soil production. I learned that, uh, well, I kept being told, I grow blueberries, and so I kept being told, yeah, they have to have the acid soil, and I kept asking the question, why? Never stop asking the question, why? Even about everything I'm sharing up here, why? You ask why. When you leave here, you say, was he, did he tell, was he correct? If you don't go out of here and you just accept what I believe, you're making a mistake. You really need to investigate it. I mean, it may all sound reasonable to you, but you really need to investigate it and understand why. Um, but I would always ask the question, why? And I was, just because you have to. Have you ever got an answer like that? You just have to. My kids give me that answer. Well, why did you say that or why did you do that? Because. That's not an answer. Um, and and I, I work with the Blueberry Growers Association in Kentucky now because I happen to meet the blueberry nursery owner of the Blueberry Nursery in Kentucky, and he's a Christian. And we were talking, and I started explaining it from a biblical standpoint. Why? First, from a scientific standpoint, and then from a biblical standpoint. And he just stopped me. He said, "You know, I knew it had to be that way. Somewhere in my, inside, I knew it had to be that way, but I didn't know." how it was. And so now he sends all the blueberry growers in Kentucky, he referred, they, they don't call me. I can tell you there's, that blueberry growers can be some of the most, when you tell them to do it a different way, they, they can be more terrified than people you've ever seen <laughs> afraid of. Um, but I, I did a, he asked me, well, could you do a, just do a, a printout, uh, a paper showing why that would be different. And so I did. I just, for the simple reason, why do they say calcium will is detrimental to blueberries. No, it's not. Calcium is, is involved in cell division. So if you want bigger blueberries, you better have good amounts of calcium. Calcium is also important for cell wall construction. If you want firm berries that are going to hold up, you need calcium. And so when they deprive the plant of the calcium, you don't get the... You double the size of the blueberry, how much increase in yield did you get? You, you doubled, at least doubled your yield. And so... and you keep more of your harvest. There's a lot of, there's a lot of things about it. We, don't, we can't take the time to do it, but 
They say it has to have ammonium nitrogen, and that's why you have to keep it acidic, because ammonium nitrogen, the bacteria, the nitrifiers that convert it to nitrate nitrogen are suppressed in an acid environment. Remember I said bacteria prefer, there are bacteria that can function in a lower um, pH environment. So it keeps it in the ammonium form, and it doesn't go to the nitrate form. Well, at that pH, molybdenum, which is required for the processing of nitrate nitrogen, is totally um, blocked at that low pH. And so you've just made the process dysfunctional. It can't work. It's not that the plant can't do it. It's that it doesn't have the resources to do it. It can't do it. <laughs> if you've kept that low pH, and molybdenum has to have a higher pH to, uh, to be functional, the nitrogenase enzyme requires a cofactor of, of molybdenum. And if you don't have it, it doesn't function right. So ask questions. Don't accept an answer because, or it's just the way it is. Don't, accept, don't ever accept an answer like that for anything. They will predominate. They'll proliferate in a more acidic environment. They'll function. Is that my phone? Sorry, folks, I forgot to turn it off. And bacteria prefer, uh, will proliferate more in, a, in an alkaline environment. But remember, we want balance. Anything taken to its extreme is not constructive. It's actually destructive. And we don't, want, we don't want them in those extremes. They both function well in a balanced, slightly acidic pH. They both function well. Um, let's see, where were we? Yeah, I tried to get a, an inoculant for aracoid fun, uh, fungi, and you, you can't. There's, there's stuff on the website, places on the website, but every one I went to, they never answered me back. So I don't know if they were just pretending to offer it, or maybe they didn't like me or something. But um, uh, Pathogenic, then the, the next group is pathogenic bacteria. Those are things like Pythium, Rhizoctonia, Phytophthora, Verticillium, Fusarium, I'm sure if you've, anybody's been gardening, they've experienced or dealt with these kind of problems. The interesting thing about these organisms, they're called pathogen, pathogenic organisms. But in a healthy soil construction, in a healthy environment, they don't behave like pathogens. They are probiotic, and they actually are beneficial. Um, I'll share, I shared this experience. No, no, I didn't. Let me share this experience from John Kempf. I'm going to share some of his material when we get to the insects, diseases, and pests. They had a watermelon field, and they were losing 80% of the crop to uh, powdery and downy mildew, to fungal, well, not just those, but to fungal diseases, soil fungal diseases as well. And we've talked a little bit about, you know, that cucurbits are a, a silicon accumulator, and if you don't, that's why they say you need to grow them on sandy soil. Um, but they were losing 80% of the crop to fungal diseases. But he noticed that, and this is an Amish fellow, sharp young guy, but he, he noticed that other fields weren't succumbing to it. And what was the difference? It was, this was actually the motivating factor of Dr. Albrecht. In research he was reading from around the world, animals were doing better on certain land than they were doing better on other land. Crops were doing better. What was the difference? What was the difference? And it started the quest to understand what the, what the difference was, and it was in the condition of the soil. That the problem was. Um, but they started with these, uh, they were losing 80% of the crop. They decided that they were going to restore the right conditions in the soil. And so they, they started out on that. The next year, they only lost 50% of the crop. They still lost 50% of the crop. 
know, a lot of people would be discouraged and say, well, that's a little bit better, but it might have just been the weather or whatever, and they would have just said, we've got to come to decide on what interventions we're going to use. The third year, they only lost 25% of the crop. The fourth year, they lost 15%. In the fifth year, they didn't lose any. Same piece of ground, exact same piece of ground. The same organisms endemic in that soil, but what had happened is you now had a giving environment created in that soil. And so now these organisms were being nourished by the plant. And they were now benefiting the plant because in their processes they were providing metabolites that the plant could take up in organic form, which is the way that the most energy efficient way for the plant to get its nutrition is in organic compounds, not as soluble elements. No, they were applying the right, the right amendments. They were determining what the conditions were, and they were following a model, a correct fertility model, and then they were applying the appropriate materials to restore completeness and balance to the system. Yeah, that may have included organic materials. He didn't elaborate to me on, on all, all of what they were applying. It, it may include that, but there was, it was more to it than that. Well, they were following a model. They were following a model that was, has been, it's been well established for decades. Uh, it's repeated. If it's true science, folks, it's repeatable, it's demonstrable, it's observable. And this model has demonstrated itself in every soil type you can imagine all over the world with every, major, every crop, major and minor, forestry, landscaping, all of it is demonstrated consistently its effectiveness, consistently. Uh, you're probably new to the class. Yeah, it's, it's the, the Albrecht TEC, Albrecht TEC modeling, um, soil model. And it was, it was discovered and, and fleshed out over decades in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. It's been known for a long time. You're wondering, well, why isn't it out there in the mainstream? Well, if you know anything about the world, you know why it's not out there. Yeah, and if you, if you, were, here for the, if you were here for the carbon fertility presentation, it was about carbon induction, building the humus in the soil via your own experience. The plant was building the humus in the soil because it was fully functional. And it was, it, it was, it was storing up oil in the lamp, if you want to put it that way, uh, as opposed to overtly bringing on organic material. Now, you know, I don't want to go through that whole class again, but it's, it's, that's, you're bringing somebody else's experience in. We read books. You're learning that's... You're learning about somebody else's experience. That's organic matter, compost, somebody else's testimony. So you're not going to just read any random book, are you? You're going to read books that, are, that, are, um, that give you good knowledge and good understanding and everything. They're edifying. You're not going to just read any old book that might trash your mind and your, your life. And so even if you are, there are times when you need to overtly apply organic matter deliberately applies to you because you don't have enough experience of your, your own. You're, you're going to glean from somebody else's experience to give you the nourishment that's necessary. But the ultimate goal is that your own experience is nourishing. And that's where you, get, you store up that experience in that humus. And so um, there's a place for, your, that's your ultimate goal. There's a place for the, the application of, overt application of organic matter from another source. You just want to be mindful of what you're bringing in with it. What kind of book is it? Did that answer your question? Um, 
So when we call these things, and you're going to see this running through a lot of this, vein running through a lot of this, we call these pathogenic, but in, under different conditions, under healthy conditions, they behave differently. Jerry here is probably going to talk about that uh, when he talks about epigenetics, how we change the influences and you change the way, the way life is, expresses itself. Okay, the next group are the protozoa. Um, there's three classifications here, the ciliates, the amoeba, and the flagellates. I, that's a, I think that's a, it's either a flagellate, no, that's not a flagellate, it's probably a, a ciliate there. Um, I couldn't find one that had all three of them in it. I was hoping I could get one that I could find all three of them in it. They're a single-celled organism, and they tend to eat bacteria. Um, they're, they're, they're up the food chain. And then when they, when they eat, they don't need as much of the nitrogen that the bacteria did. And so a waste product for them is nitrogen. And when it's given off as a waste product, um, that's not a waste product for the plant. And the plant takes that up as a resource and, and grows because it's the nitrogen source. Then you have nematodes. They're little eel-like looking things. They're microscopic. Um, I forgot I was going to put a picture in here. You think there's not some cleverness in nature. You, there, I've seen photographs of a, a mycorrhizal fungi, the filament, going around and lassoing the nematode. Just like you know, a, a rancher would lasso a, ca a calf or something like that. He'd go and lasso it and capture it and eat it. <laughs> okay, there's, uh, there's saprophytes. Predators and parasites. Saprophytes are decomposers. They're breaking down organic matter, and uh, the, the waste products, the byproducts that come from it are, are beneficial to the plant. Of course, when something else eats the nematode, then that's broken down, and that also releases and makes more nutrients available. The predators, uh, but these, the saprophytes, are just decomposers. They're breaking down organic material. The predators eat other... Um, creatures in the, in the system. So I have bacteria, fungi, protozoa. They, they eat other organisms in the, in the system. And, uh, of course, the waste product from them also is beneficial to the, to the plant. It's organic material. It's organically bound nutrients. The plant doesn't have to use all the energy. This is where you get high-functioning, high-photosynthesizing plants is when those, all of those resources are already built into organic compounds that the plant can take up. Then it doesn't have to expend the energy to produce those compounds. Uh, it's much more efficient for the biology in the soil to produce it than the plant can. And the plant prefers it. That's why it dumps, as I've said before, 70% of its exudates, its photosynthase, the sugars, and the starches it produces, it dumps it out its roots early on in its life. It gives it away to, to expand and build this this network, this com I shouldn't call it a network, I don't like that term network, um, a community that will support that plant through its process of growth, maturity, and reproduction. That's what we're to do, is to bear fruit. And then you have the parasites that um, parasitize they don't, uh, the plant. And again, in this, in this case, um, Different conditions bring about completely different behavior. Instead of hostile behavior, you have benign behavior. Because the plant, it's being nourished. Everything was to have its food source. 
And when you, when you alter the system, you, you, you deconstruct the system that was intended to provide that, and they're no longer now nourished. And we'll talk about this when we talk about the insects, diseases, and pests, because that's how you eliminate them. Uh, when they're nourished, then they actually become beneficial to the system. And when they're not nourished, there's dysfunction, and so sometimes they go after things that are already demonstrating that they need to be de destroyed. We've talked about this too, that uh, the whole admonition that if the, apple's good enough, if the apple's good enough for the worm, it's good enough for me, well, that's foolishness. It's, it's simply telling you that it's, it's not good. Okay, we go up the chain a little bit further to the arthropods. And this one picture does have a whole collection there, and I'm not going to try to tell you what every one of them is because there are a lot of them. There are two groups, shredders. There are shredders and predators. The shredders break down organic matter. They break it down into smaller, smaller fragments so that they can be broken down even further. Um, and there are predators. They eat other organisms, protozoa, bacteria, fungi, nematodes. Um, and they, what they're doing is they're, they're just diversifying the, the available nutrition in that soil for the plant. Remember we were talking about compost? And they, these, these all have their own roles. And so if you're compost, you have too much brown material. Well, that's okay for the fungi, but it, it's not okay for the bacteria, and you're going to create imbalance there. Uh, and, and vice versa. They all have their role in order to bring that organic material back to a life-giving um, situation again. And then earthworms. I thought you'd like that. I thought you liked that slide. That is a real earthworm. It's a giant earthworm, and they exist. Um, we had some night crawlers. I didn't put on here the different kinds of earthworms, but we had some night crawlers in our, our yard under a mulberry tree. Boy, those, those earthworms love those the, the, the food from that mulberry tree because we had, we had worm castings all over underneath that thing, and you, we'd go out there at certain times of the day, and they'd all be up out of the ground just kind of hanging out, laying there and everything. And they, were, they were about this long. They, they were growing really well under that, mul that mulberry tree. But they were that big around, too. They were, they were pretty big. But I've never seen one this big. Okay, everybody's all excited about the earthworms, so I, th I figured I needed to throw it in there. Um, they're recyclers. Again, they will take organic material, and they will break it down and digest it and process it to, b to bring it to a more stable and available form for the plant. And... Uh, they increase nutrient availability. Now, let me make, clear, make, make it clear what that says. It says they increase nutrient availability. A lot of people think that they will balance your soil out, that they will, that they will increase the, the mineral balance, they'll improve the mineral balance in your soil. No, they will not. They will increase the nutrient availability. So what you have in the soil, particularly trace elements, what you have in the soil, they will make more available. They won't make it more balanced, and they won't make it more complete. They'll just make more available what is in the soil. So if you have complete mineralization, they're going to make it more available to, to the plant. 
and they improve soil structure through their tunneling, um, to their, their tunnel holes that they leave behind. They leave channels that water can infiltrate and air can infiltrate. And when we were talking about the tillage, and I know all of you haven't been in the class the whole time, but when we were talking about tillage, we were talking about, you know, iron is not always the methodology of plowing often and plowing deep. And if you get good soil structure, you don't want to destroy it. Once you have, you've got to plow often and plow deep until you get the kind of conditions that you need. And at that point, you need to start using other methodologies like tiller radishes or alfalfa or, or other tap-rooted crops to, to keep the channels open. But once you have this, this is going to keep the soil open. This is going to keep the, the, root, the root channels that, that uh, when the roots decompose, if those channels remain, the earthworm tunnels, um, all of that, when that becomes, gets developed, you're going, to be, you're going to be maintaining that. And so then you have to, your management decisions on tillage have to be determined by, you know, what do you need to do to, to plant the crop? You may only do a tillage a couple inches deep just to create a seed bed because you don't want to damage all of that structure. Or if you've got a compaction layer somewhere down in there, you may want to use a subsoiler and go through and, and, and break that compaction layer. But you don't want to damage all of that. And I shared, I shared uh, about some research that was done growing cucurbits with um, just on open soil, on soil, tilled soil, tilled soil with uh, a mulch on it, uh, soil that was, had a, uh, a green manure crop crimp, roll crimped down and then a green manure crop roll crimped down and mulch put over it. And the, the, uh, the crop that, that produced the earliest was the, the one on the crimped down mulched bed. The one with the crimped down bed was the next, and then the other two came along after that. But it was like three weeks earlier. The crop came in three weeks earlier. Why did that happen? Because the structure of the soil, when you go in with a tiller or anything or a plow and you, you till it all up, you just tore apart your mycorrhizal networks and sorry, communities. Um, communities are real. Networks are just something to be used. Um, you roll it down. It's a, it's a type of roller where it has uh, blades on it, kind of blades, and it kind of crimps it when it's going, and that's supposed to you know, cause it to dehydrate. And, um, So when you get earthworms like this in your soil, you know you're really doing well. <laughs> but earthworms are an indicator, an indicator of the fertility of the soil. When I first started working the land we bought in Kentucky there, there were no earthworms around. They weren't. This year, when we were digging potatoes, earthworms just came. We just put the fork in and pull back, and earthworms would come shooting up out of the ground all over the place. They thought an earthquake was happening, I guess, or something. <laughs> and uh, they're everywhere now. And as you pr improve the conditions, these are all indicators. You know, people ask me, how can we know what our soil needs? Is there any other way besides taking a soil test? And I said, yes, there is. There's observation. There's, no there's knowledge and an understanding of that knowledge. Uh, and there's a lot of old-timers around that can teach you a lot of that. But that's a process that might take you 10, 20, 30 years to learn because we're way behind on that. We threw out agriculture a long time ago, and so um, we really don't have a whole lot of vision in this area. So we really need something that's a little more immediate for us until we can learn that process. Okay, I put this up there. This is a, a, a soil biology primer that was done by Dr. Elaine Ingham for USDA. 
Uh, I forgot to bring it with me, so I just put a picture on here so you could see it. This is really a very distilled down, very good book to understand about how the biology and the soil works. Elaine Ingham, if you just search for it with, under USDA, it's, it was published by the USDA. She just, she's just the author. She authored it. Excellent. If any of you know Dr. Elaine Ingham, if you want to know about the soil food web, she can tell you way more than you want to know, and she can do it really well. Um, I'll tell you what I do, and I'll tell you what most people do. When I, I have this new ground. We had been in Colorado for 20 years, and so I had a lot of things working the way they needed to be, but we had to leave because of, of water rights issues. We fought it for two years and gave up on that because it's too political, didn't have deep enough pockets, and there were other priorities. Um, so we're starting with a new, a new area, and what I tend to do initially is I observe what's happening. And I correlate it to what the conditions in the soil are from the soil tests that I've taken and everything. So I do some interventions, um, but I don't do enough intervention. Because look, if you need the food, so something's better than nothing. I mean, you, you can't go hungry. Um, but I try, to, I try not to over-intervene so that I can observe what's happening. What are the conditions here? What's going on? What, what things are... Um, what effects am I getting here? What insects? What pests? And uh, then I can kind of tell where, where the, you'll see when we go to this pyramid that was done by John Kempf, you'll, you'll see it's telling me something about where, where the functionality of the soil and the plants are so that I can better, better make better management decisions about what I need to do and everything. Most people just use interventions. So, yeah, they squish the grub. Um, I wouldn't but I'm not telling you not to because um, it could potentially be harmful. It could be <laughs> damaging and it could potentially be beneficial. You don't really know, but um, I wouldn't say there's anything wrong with it. I just, I, I tend to try to leave things going as way they are more as much as I can and still get a crop. Um, like we had bean beetles. Uh, I grow a pole bean called Fortex. It's an open pollinated variety and I'm 6'5". I don't like bending down to harvest stuff and it'll grow 10 feet tall and we get huge yields off of it. Wonderful bean. Um, but there were bean beetles on it. And so I did some mild interventions to kind of keep them under control, but I didn't um, completely eliminate them because I, I, I wanted to observe it through the whole season. Was there, were these environmental stresses that were causing this? Where was I as far as fertility went? And I shared in one of the other classes that my, my tomatoes in the high tunnel, how they started off beautiful and they're eight feet tall and trusses of tomatoes and any stage of ripeness from you know, almost red all the way up to just setting the fruit. And uh, the rain came, and the, the clouds came, and there wasn't sufficient photosynthesis to produce enough energy for the plant. At that stage, when you got an eight-foot-tall plant trying to maintain its frame and reproduce, bring, be fruitful, um, there wasn't quite enough potassium for, for that crop, and it was under that stress to both frame and reproduce at the same time. And so that's when you get early blight hit. And I got early blight. Early blight is a potassium deficiency and a stress, you know, stress on the plant where it can't maintain a, you know, sufficient function. And I got early blight on them, and they look pitiful. I had a picture of them, but it didn't look. I was gone to Colorado, and I was gonna lay, thinking about laying them down, but my wife said, let's just pull them out because we don't have time to really mess with them. But when the stresses from the environment, which we're going to talk about, subsided, 
We get back to sunny days, more moderated weather and everything. They got green on top again. And they started growing. They look beautiful. There's a, there's a lesson in this, though, folks. A lot of times we're not prepared for the stresses. We have hidden hunger. We're malnourished at a level we don't realize. And we're doing fine as long as the conditions are sufficient for us to do that. But when the stresses come, and it's important that we hear that because stresses are coming, folks. All of a sudden we realize we're not prepared. We're not anywhere near prepared to deal with those stresses. And that was what that illustration was, was for me. So I, I, try to, I try to observe as much as I can. So in that situation, I know, well, they just succumbed because we're not there yet. I just started on the fertility, and it's not anywhere close. There wasn't enough reserves built in that plant to handle the stresses. And so when they came, it just it crashed. It would have, but my objective was to grow as many tomatoes as I could. So, and, and I, could have, I could have pruned it off, and I actually did that. I took a bunch of trusses of fruit off to reduce the, the load off of it some. Did you to, add the and, yeah, I did add some foliar potassium to it. But at that point, it was, they were, in, you know, I'm just now getting so I can go back to full-time managing a farm because we were in the process of moving and all the transition and stuff. And... Uh, So I wasn't able to, to do the things that I needed to do sufficiently. I probably could have foliar applied potassium. It was boron deficiency. You could see the growing tips were starting to succumb. Um, I could have done foliars to compensate for it, yeah. But I, did, I didn't have the time to manage that and do it. But yes, you can. That's why it's important to know what are the symptoms going on here. And it's important to know, and when we, well, I'll say that for when we do the insect diseases in prep. So now we're going to look at environmental influences. Your so- this is the other part of the growing system. This is the other part of life, folks. What we do internally is like that, like the soil. But there are external influences on us all the time, and the same thing is true. There's external influences on that soil. And so we need to look at what those are. I don't have extensive slides on this because I think most of you will you'll get it as soon as we're looking at it. We'll just, we'll just elaborate on it a little bit. Um, what are those influences? And it's important you take these into consideration. But it's not more important. This is not more important than the soil. What's important is that the internal environment is, is properly constructed, that it's correct, because that will give you the greatest ability to buffer these influences. I don't know if anybody else has noticed, like I have, but the world seems to be getting a little more, a lot, not a little more, a lot more erratic, extreme. Everything seems to be more extreme. People's behavior seems to be more extreme. The weather seems to be more extreme. Everything. It's because there is no stability anymore. There is no buffering in, in our lives because we're more and more and more imbalanced and further away from the image of God. And, and it, it's happening. You know, all the environmental stuff, you hear environmental stuff all the time. It's just, it's, it, it's being used as a control technique. It's not being used because there's legitimate care and concern about it. If there was, they would be looking at the, the, the solutions to it, not just how can we control people more and restrict their lives and, and everything. I have people come up and they get mad at me all the time because they ask, I, I ask them, they'll start talking about it, the whole you know, increased carbon in the atmosphere and everything like that. And I said, I, thought, I always say, I thought plants loved carbon. Why, why is the vegetation on the planet not proliferating? It should be just 
proliferating because of the increase. Commercial greenhouses inject carbon into the atmosphere to get increased growth. So, so I asked them, I said, do you think the problem is, is the increased carbon in the atmosphere? Is there not, uh, from the, the carbon in the atmosphere or why the carbon is in the atmosphere? And the problem, again, comes back to the soil. It's the same thing. The environmental influences, as far as society goes and the culture goes, and all of the extremes that are going on there are the same problem. It's a character problem. It's the character of the soil. It's a mineralization problem. And it's not properly mineralized, then you don't have the right spirit or the, or the porosity to it. And when you don't have those things, it can't function. If, it was, if, if that was right, that carbon wouldn't be in the atmosphere. It wouldn't be there. You can actually measure. It's almost all of the carbon that's burned, burn out of soils is the difference between what's not in the soil anymore, stored up as oil in the lamp, it's up in the atmosphere, corrupting the spirit, <laughs> if you want to put it that way. Sorry, I mingle these things together all the time. And if you don't know what I mean, just ask. <laughs> I'm hoping you'll feel will. Um, okay, so obviously you have the weather. You have light, how much light you have, sunlight, or the lack of. You have temperature, how hot it is, how cold it is. You have moisture, how wet is it, how dry is it. You have wind, how windy is it, how calm is it. And I put on there pressure too because you have changes in barometric pressure depending on the conditions that are coming along and that pressure influences, influences the crop. So the thing is that you're not going to do a whole lot about these things unless you use some type of climate modification technique, which would be like putting a high tunnel in or a greenhouse. Or um, I have people like out in Colorado, people say, well, I don't have a whole lot of money. I said, well, can you, if you want to increase the microclimate around your plants, well, do you have jugs, empty plastic jugs? Put some water in it, put it around your plants. It'll absorb heat during the day and give it off at night. Or stones, put stones around your plants and they'll absorb heat and then they'll give them off at night. Or put a cover over it to, to shed some of the rain. Um, there are ways of modifying some of these things, but you're not going to stop them from coming. They're going to they're be expressed. And the unfortunate thing is we don't have optimum light levels anymore. Where I was in Colorado, we were at 7,000 feet in elevation. We got, on average, 10,000 foot candles of light a day. Um, and plants only need three to 4,000. It was too much. It was too much light. And so I would have raspberry plants growing outside, and they would only get, you know, about four feet high. Sometimes they get as high as five feet, depending on the moisture we were able to put on them. In the greenhouse, I had some, some raspberry plants, same variety. They were eight and nine feet tall. And we got, we got yields off of those. People tell you, oh, this is what you get, and that's what you get. I don't follow the yield charts anymore. I just, you know... I expect to get at least what the yield chart says, but uh, we got so many, it was a golden raspberry plant, the variety was Ann, and it was, the, the cane was this thick. It was, a, it was at least an inch, inch and a half thick going, going up, and then it has all the branches off of it with the, the fruiting branches, and we probably got three or four or five pints of blueberries off that one plant, off of one plant. It was just just producing them. Well, we, we'd given it better conditions. We had modified these influences so that they were more favorable for optimum growth. Optimum growth is going to be reasonable light levels, reasonable temperatures, reasonable moisture, and reasonable uh, wind conditions, 
That was another problem I had out in Colorado is we had wind all the time. You guys don't, if you're not from that part of the country that has wind all the time, you don't know what wind is. You just get used to the idea that it's blowing 10, 15 miles an hour, sometimes 20 miles an hour every day. And when you get a calm day, you're wondering what happened. Um, but that's what, what are the consequences? Um, actually, let's go back to the light. You know, you go back into an area where there's more cloud cover, it, it's, it has to do with photosynthesis, but it also has to do with the plant being able to, to hydrate itself. Um, but in a highlight environment like that, you've got more than enough photo photosynthesis. That's why there's a lot of commercial greenhouses out west, because you have so much light. Um, but the, the problem with that is then you have moisture stress on the, on the plant. And you also, you also have you know, what we call ultraviolet. Um, in a fully functional plant, it produces uh, essential oils. We'll see that in the, later down. It produces these uh, thicker lipid layer, and it produces a lot of essential oils with the sur surplus energy it produces when it's pressed down and overflowing. And, and in doing that, it, it, pre it produces a protective layer that insulates itself from that extreme ultraviolet on there. And, I, you know, we're told all the time, stay out of the sun, stay out of the sun, because uh, it's dangerous for you. But the truth is it's only dangerous because we don't have the internal environment to be blessed by it. And so, actually, when you put all that stuff all over you, you're actually probably putting more danger on you than the sun would, sun would be to you. But, if you, again, if you don't change the internal environment, though, so that it can adequately interact with these influences, um, you, will, you will have problems. So I'm not saying that you won't have problems. But to all, this is a man-made solution here, okay? God gave us the sun to be a blessing. Stay out of it. Um, but, you know, out here, you know, and out in areas where you get higher cloud cover, more frequent cloud cover, that's what happened to my tomatoes in Kentucky. We had just record rainfall, cloud cover. The plant doesn't get enough light. And so it's, it's, it doesn't, can't produce adequate energy to, to run the plant, if you want to put it that way. And so it comes under stress. It can't do everything that it needs to do because it doesn't have the energy resources to do it without dismantling part of the plant itself. And that's where the early blight comes in. The plant starts dismantling itself to reproduce. That's its objective. That's what our objective is, to bear fruit. We're to bear the fruit of the image of, the, of, of God. That's what, go back to Genesis again, and that's what we're called to do. Um, so it starts taking resources from the plant itself, from the, the frame, to provide for the, the reproduction. And when it does that, uh, it, it triggers the uh, indicators the signals of senescence, the plant's dying, and that's when the, that's when the alternaria, which is a leaf-dwelling fungal organism, organism um, begins attacking the leaf because it's given the signal that it's dying. Um, temperature, again, we, we feel most comfortable at certain temperatures, right? It doesn't feel so good at 100 degrees, um, even in low humidity. You, know, you can tolerate it a little bit better, but... Um, just 70 degrees in high humidity can be, can be pretty uh, stressful. So this same thing that's happening to me and you is happening to the plant. It's trying to maintain its function. And this stress is being, if it's an extreme, it's being imposed on it. And so energy resources, resources have to be diverted from growth, maturity, and reproduction to dealing with these, buffering these stresses.
And so if you don't have adequate resources to do that and continue the process, then things start breaking down. And so, um, again, if you can modify, like there are climate modifying techniques, you can put shade cloth to help um, break the sun and some of the radiant heat that's coming from it, a reflective shade cloth especially, to break that. You can put covers over to warm. Um, I don't know if all of, you, all of you weren't in here when I was sharing that, that when I was at Eden Valley, I was told that I couldn't grow melons there because we were at high elevation. It was 6,000 plus feet. I don't remember what it was exactly. Uh, high desert climate, dry climate. You, don't, you lose heat at night because there's no, there's no heat sink. There's not enough vegetation and heat sink to, to hold that heat. So it just dissipates back into the atmosphere at night. So you, you can have huge temperature swings. Um, and so I just had to figure out what were, the, what were the, the conditions that were necessary for me to grow melons in that environment. Well, they needed more heat. We were sprinkle irrigating. And if you've ever been in a dry climate and had water hit you, I don't care if it's 90 degrees outside, you have water hit you, you're going to get cold. And again, you just affected the temperature of the plant, and so now resources are being diverted to bring the temperature back up to functional level as a because it was chilled. So I just had to modify these conditions. So we went to drip irrigation instead of overhead sprinkle irrigation, the black drip tape, warmed the water, because it was snow melt that we were watering with, warmed the water up, uh, and we put a, I put an IRT mulch, which is a green or brown mulch that tra transmits infrared, but doesn't, doesn't transmit visible light. And so we could warm the soil while not allowing weeds to grow under there. And I was able to produce melons as early as the Arkansas Valley in Colorado, which is a much lower elevation. And uh, just by understanding these conditions and understanding what the needs of the plant are. Now, you can't always economically do that. You're going to have to decide. Uh, you know, if you live up in Alaska and you want to grow bananas in the wintertime, <laughs> you're, you're going to have to look at the economics of that. And you may have to decide, well, I better get everything I need when it, the, the days are long. And, Maybe look at a, a little lemon tree or something with a grow light in my house. <laughs> this media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.